0: Welcome to the Iron Women podcast. I'm Alyssa Gadeski, and usually I'm here with my co-host, Haley Chura, but we are on summer break, so instead of hearing from us this week, you will hear an episode of the new and limited Feisty Media Title IX series. You can listen to the full series called Nine, Voices for Title IX, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in a couple weeks.
1: Came into the tunnel and realized in the darkness that, you know, unless I fell flat on my face, I was going to probably win the the first Women's Olympic Marathon. And then thought, are you capable of carrying the title that will come with winning this race? I think Scott's reaction, and I don't think he was alone, was that we don't want what Julie did to turn this into a freak show, freak show, freak show.
0: Some people, I'm sure, had funny feelings about it. I know the men
2: did. I didn't really care. Art is one of those things that can unite people with differences. It's not, you know, about skin color and, you know, all these other socioeconomic differences. You want your team to win, to win. I'm Celine Yeager. I'm Sarah Gross.
3: This is Nine. Voices for Title IX, powered by Inside Tracker. A podcast that tells the stories behind the law that changed everything. This
0: is Nine hey nine. 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 Hey, Sue. hey Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> We didn't decide beforehand who was going to say hi first, so that's what happens when we go off script. It's just craziness. <laughs> um, so we are in episode one of nine voices for title nine, powered by Inside Tracker. And I just want to take a minute here to thank um, the woman who did that interview this week for this show. So Haley Chura, she is the co-host of our longest-running podcast here at Feisty, um, called Iron Women. Many, so many folks listening will know Haley, and Haley herself, you know, she even talks about it. How much she benefited from Title IX. She was an NCAA swimmer turned professional triathlete. She's a 70.3 and an Ironman champion. But Haley's also had the opportunity to go to the Olympic trials in two different sports and three different times. So swimming, and she went to the um, marathon trials uh, in, oh man, now I'm blanking. I went to it right before COVID, Atlanta, in Atlanta, where there was like, that was. Sorry, speaking of women's sports, I know that's what this podcast is about, but like they're like uh, watching 500 women actually who all could run 245 or faster for a marathon was insane. Wow.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. So anyway, on to the show for today. Celine, what do we have coming up?
3: Okay. So she interviews Wendy Mink, who is the daughter of Patsy Mink, who was the main author of Title IX. Wow. She is also, yeah, she is also the co-author of Patsy's biography which is fierce and fearless, Patsy Takemoto Mink, the first woman of color in Congress. And I I have to say, I loved this interview because I didn't know very much about the background of this legislation before we started this series. And this is the first one that I personally listened to. And I realized that this legislation was crafted by a woman who was literally setting out to change the future for all of us. Like she felt the urgency of seeing her daughter facing the same structural baked in sexism of not being accepted by educational institutions simply because she was female and sought to change that. And I was like, wow, this is this is everything.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she, sorry, I've got, just got chills when you're talking like, because it, it, and I think that this particular interview underlines the fact that the law was largely about education. Like I, it mm-hmm. sounds like Patsy Mink's original observations. She herself, I mean, it won't give too much away, but she herself was denied access to medical school from numerous different schools when she applied um, and said, this is enough You know, like women deserve to be educated equal in an equal way. And she just spent her entire life changing that. Um, So, yeah, I found I also found this incredible. And interestingly, the law, I didn't realize this before um, I did my homework on this, but the law itself that we that we call Title IX was actually changed its name in 2002 to the Patsy T. Mink Equal
3: Opportunity in Education Act. Um, So that's that's well-deserved. Well-deserved. And I didn't know that either. I didn't know until we were getting ready to do this intro. And that's really cool because seeing how she fought for this legislation and pushed and pushed and pushed and didn't, you know, just didn't stand down. And then, you know, her daughter calls for us all to do the same, you know. And I think that the messages here are so important as we are seeing things that we thought were settled you know law be, be pushed back and nothing is ever fully settled and there's always work to be done in the show is a really good really good reminder of that
0: yeah i was really struck when she said like she felt her mom used her own sadness and despair kind of mm-hmm. over the plight of women to press forward like to make such positive change and i really sort of related to that i think sometimes um though we might not see it externally like i feel sometimes i feel angry you know and like using that anger I've like intentionally try to use that anger for the the change like to, to try to make change as well so I, i've really related to that um and loved that uh and then i also think like this interview sets the stage really well for the rest of what's coming up because i think we're spending the next eight episodes after this talking very specifically about sport because we didn't see you know, we didn't necessarily see it coming that Title IX was going to have such a big impact on women's sports, um, but this definitely sets the stage for like what the law was about broadly, in the sense of like the Civil Rights Act and all mm-hmm. the other things that were going on at the time. So.
3: Yeah, and again, like it, it's all it's all a living document, right? And that we we need to keep we need to keep it living and need to keep pressing on.
2: Absolutely. So let's have a few words from our sponsors and then enjoy the episode. Wendy, thank you so much for joining me here today. Thank you for having me. So I just want to jump into questions here. We're going to talk a lot about your mother, Patsy Takamoto Mink, because, and I want to start with kind of a fun question. I read that early in her congressional career, she had an issue with a swimming pool. And I'm sure many of our listeners come from the endurance sports world. I come from the endurance sports world, and we have all dealt with difficult pool or gym hours, but your mother's situation was a bit different. Can you tell me about her? Her victory for congressional women swimming?
1: Well, I'm not sure how much of a victory it was actually, but um, what the situation was, um, was that there were, I believe 11 women in the House of Representatives when she first arrived in Congress in January of 1965. And the rules of the US House of Representatives, Jim, uh, segregated women's participation in the gym to only certain very limited hours on very limited days of the week. It was like an hour and a half for uh, you know, an hour and a half per spell for maybe three days in a, in a week. So it was clearly an unequal situation for access to athletic facilities, which for most of the women, particularly. Um, was uh, galling because they wanted to to swim in the swimming pool, do laps and and that sort of thing. So they staged a pro or three of them staged a a protest um, against this um, discrimination against women house members uh, and tried to um, uh, gain equality, equal access to athletic facilities in the US House of Representatives to gain equal time and integrated time for use of the pool um, and so forth, and they gained ex- slightly expanded hours, but they didn't gain the full um, sort of, uh, you know, sort of comprehensive sense of, of equality, and they certainly didn't get locker rooms. So um, the, the rest of the battle got played out 20 years later or so, but they, they took the first step in sort of exposing this inequality in Congress, this sort of anti-democratic exclusion of some members from Participating in a place where the guys did a lot of business, you know, you hear all the time of of, uh, male Congress members talking about making deals with fellow male Congress members or coming to understandings over, you know, uh, swimming or basketball or things like that and the women were completely excluded from that and so they wanted to stand up for themselves, not only for the athletics, but also for the access to common social spaces where Um, business was conducted.
2: Yes. And it might've taken 20 more years, but I'm sure that women in Congress today are thankful for your mom and those steps that she took and recognizing inequality and taking action to make some major changes, which is kind of a theme of her life. And one of those big changes came in 1972 when Patsy was the co-author and sponsor of Title IX, which in 2002 was officially renamed the Patsy T. Mink Equal Opportunity in Education Act. And so you, along with Judy uh, Zuchan Wu, a co-author of your mother's biography, Fierce and Fearless, Patsy Takamoto Mink, First Women of Color in Congress, um, it was just released earlier this month. And so you are someone, you knew your mother intimately, and you also are her biographer. So can you tell us a little bit in that same theme of taking life experiences and taking noticing things and taking action, how, how her key life experiences influenced her commitment to create legislation that was centered on gender equality in education?
1: Well, I think that um, her life experiences were instructive to her as as was her reaction to some of those experiences, Um, but she took not only her own life experiences, but the experiences that she learned from others um, that were also important into kind of a package of action that she thought it was necessary to carry forward Um, into policies like Title IX. For herself, in 1999, um, which was uh, three years before she passed away, she gave a speech in the House of Representatives um, about the importance of Title IX and the struggles to achieve Title IX and the struggles to maintain Title IX in which she sort of um, pulled the thread through in her own life um, that led to her thinking about the centrality of, of 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 achieving a law for for gender equity uh, in the educational context. When she was in college, she experienced race discrimination and took action against that. Um, As a student enrolled at the University of Nebraska, she was discriminated against for purposes of housing. So um, that sort of strain of discrimination sort of was etched very deeply in um, in her consciousness. As a recent or soon to be graduating senior from college, she applied to medical schools and was rejected. Um, in some cases, she was told she was a, it was because she was a woman. In general, one can uh, deduct that it was because she was a woman because at the time, only 5% of, of uh, enrolled, enrolled students in medical schools were female. Uh, when she, she then went on to law school Uh, when she graduated from law school, nobody would hire her, explicitly saying that she was a woman, she was a married woman, she was a mother. All three of that basket of excuse was um, proffered as reasons why firms didn't want to hire her. Uh, When she tried to take the bar exam in Hawaii after returning from law school, she was initially denied because she was married to a man who was not uh, born in Hawaii, born and raised in Hawaii, so she was assigned the uh, the domicile identity of her husband, um, irrespective of her own uh, origins and her own citizenship, and so forth. So all of those kinds of um, experiences of exclusion and subordination and dismissal surely, you know, sort of informed her consciousness both in the employment arena and in the education arena. But I'd have to say, and she says this in the 1999 uh, speech that she gave, that um, it was seeing sort of very similar discrimination visited upon me that um, really sort of sparked a sense of urgency in her mind about acting uh, to stop discrimination in education. Because it's not so much that it was me, I was her daughter. It was that I was sort of representative of what was happening to the generation of girls that I belonged to. And uh, it was the same stuff that had been imposed upon her generation of girls when they were coming up uh, through the educational system. And the idea that sort of, you know, you would have reproduced in perpetuity the same structures um, that held women back, held girls back, um, was something that she was not willing to really tolerate. And that's how um, she acquired the sort of burning spirit uh, behind what ultimately was achieved of as Title IX.
2: And you mentioned some of the the inequalities that Title IX addressed, which include admissions to college, which both you and your mother experienced, um, housing quotas, and this is primarily a women's sports podcast. And now title IX is often equated with women's sports, but I mean, it wasn't always that way. Like you said, the initial, initial, uh, goals weren't exactly athletics related. So when did it become clear that the legislation would have such a profound impact on women's athletics?
1: Well, um, during the run-up to actual enactment of title IX. uh, Title IX as a package was not that controversial. There, there were little fires that that burned here and there along the way, but nobody paid tremendous attention to, to Title IX because it was part of a much larger uh, uh, policy package that that included much bigger fires over school desegregation and uh, college student uh, financial assistance and things like that. So. Um, I don't know whether the athletics lobby was awakened, the male athletics lobby was awakening in the in the run up to 1972, but they sure w- woke up fast in terms of action in the immediate aftermath of uh, passage of Title IX in, in 1972, and began efforts uh, lobbying legislators, uh, getting them to, to attach provisions to various forms of, of legislation that would curtail the application of this Gender equality concept uh, in its implementation to curtail it so that it wouldn't apply to athletics. And so they tried, you know, they tried different language to um, uh, amend uh, implementation so that it wouldn't affect revenue producing sports, which meant men's football, basically, right? Um, They tried language that would, you know, prevent Title IX from being applied to physical education. Uh, activities and instruction. Um, various, various sort of um, efforts like that, beginning in you know, early 1973 all the way until the summer of 1975, when the, the final rules that would determine how Title IX was going to be implemented went into effect. And during that period, it, the, the whole fight over athletics was what sort of captured. Um, or I guess it was the most visible struggle. Um, and you had all these you know, male coaches of uh, college football teams and whatever, uh, waging war against it in, a, in very public ways, holding press conference, conferences and things like that. You had NCAA leaders saying that Title IX was insane. Um, you know, the public imagination was certainly captured by this whole question of whether or not there could be equality for women in girls and women in athletics. Um, So it was never the only aspect of Title IX for sure, but it was clearly a very important implication of what equity was going to mean. And it was an implication that the status quo was not happy with accepting.
2: So in the book, you describe Patsy as an intersectional feminist before intersectionality was even an official term. And we often think of Title IX in terms of gender equality, but in writing, implementing and defending the legislation, because as you just described, things weren't done in 1972. The struggle continued. Um, But throughout that whole process, was Patsy also considering equality in areas outside of
1: gender? Um, Well, she was certainly uh, an ardent advocate for civil rights. And she was also an ardent ardent advocate for uh, various educational measures and other measures that either mitigated or would set the course towards ending poverty. Um, And those things come together in how you conceive of educational equity, right? It's not just sort of a a grand theory that's pronounced that, you know, uh, all girls and women shall be equal, and then whoever has the means to achieve that equality can can come and claim it, right? In her view, you had to have, um, not necessarily as part of the the policy that was called Title IX, but as collateral policies, as contributing policies, you needed to have uh, resources made available uh, for girls and women of various uh, economic um, uh, locations so that they could access education on an equal equal footing. You needed to have policies in place that would make sure that the uh, experiences that face many girls and women, for example, pregnancy and parenting, would not become impediments to pursuit of educational opportunity and so forth. And you needed to to sort of uh, approach the whole question of equality from the point of view of the least advantaged woman, the least advantaged girl, not just the girl who, you know, made straight A's in college and was, was bound for law school. That person needed to be guaranteed equal access to, but she wasn't the only one who was going to be part of this uh, redistribution of opportunities to include girls and women uh, in the United States.
2: In 2002, on the 30th anniversary of Title IX, Patsy is quoted as saying, While it is wonderful that many young girls and women today take it for granted that they'll be offered equitable educational opportunities, must not forget our struggle for the passage of Title IX. So in 2002, I was a junior in high school, and I was definitely one of those young women that Patsy was referring to who were taking my equitable educational and athletic opportunities for granted because I was preparing to be a collegiate swimmer at the University of Georgia. But however, since then, I will say I'm proud that I have grown up a bit and I have learned to appreciate what that kind of opportunity I had and what a relatively new experience that was for someone like me to swim in college. So when I I look at Patsy's quote and I think about what she says about remembering the struggle, Do you think she also means, you know, we, you know, me, people who have benefited from Title IX, we also just need to join that struggle and make sure we keep it. Is that
1: what she's referring to? Oh, absolutely. That's exactly what she means. I think later in that speech, she goes on to talk about the the sort of the anniversaries being not just a moment for celebrating what we've accomplished, but as moments to rededicate ourselves, each generation. Um, To making sure that Title IX remains uh, a living, breathing policy, making sure that girls and women know it exists and can deploy it and make sure that the guidance and regulations that that determine how it's going to be enforced and implemented uh, are written in a way that will help uh, the people that are intended uh, to be the beneficiaries of Title IX. she calls for vigilance, and that means for all of us. Uh, she wants all of us, or she wanted all of us to engage in the struggle, because if you look through the decades after 19, the 1970s, after the 1975 uh, challenge by the athletics lobby and so forth, um, the struggle was never over. You know, The struggle um, about protecting, defending Title IX, keeping it on the books, the, the struggle to make sure that it was enforced equitably all of that was, was raging in the 80s, it was raging in the 90s, all kinds of backlash against uh, girls and women's equity in the educational process and in the athletics um, uh, scenario, especially um, emerged in, in all of those decades. So um, it was never something that you could just sort of say one and done, you know, okay, we have equality now, let's, let's rest on our laurels. And, you know, as anybody knows who's reading the newspapers today, girls and women in schools and in high schools and colleges are still fighting for equitable facilities, equitable resources and and so forth um, in order to make the the promise uh, come true.
2: And we have seen some recent victories for equality in women's sports. We've seen the equal split of world cup bonuses between the U S women's and men's national soccer team. And for the first time, in the history of Ironman triathlon, my sport, um, this October's world championships in Hawaii will feature an equal number of women and men professional qualifiers. So these victories aren't happening in federally funded educational institutions. And so they're outside the scope of Title IX. But do you think these wins are an indirect result
1: of Title IX? Um, I definitely think so. I think that um, obviously the professional sports and the adult um, competitions are, are not directly reached by Title IX. But I think that, you know, once you, once, once it was admitted that... That uh, girls needed access to physical education on an e- equal basis with boys, right? Which was the big struggle in the mid 1970s. That began a process wherein, you know, a whole um, mass of, of young girls, young young women, um, could develop their talents in athletics, even discover their their talents and interests in athletics, and then go on to pursue it in um, arenas that that. You know, uh, extend beyond the actual educational uh, environment. So yes, I, I definitely think that Title IX is part of this whole um, explosion of talent, uh, and definitely, um, you know, is kind of a an anchor or an inspiration or uh, something like that behind the the fight for equitable uh, sharing of of. Uh, 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 revenue and things like that, um, by male and female teams.
2: So recently I was talking to a man and he casually mentioned that he was on a collegiate swim team until it was canceled due to title IX. So I'm sure you've been in a situation like this, as have many of our listeners. Do you have a good response for this kind of comment?
1: Well, I don't know if I have a good response. I mean, part of, part of my response is that the person probably doesn't know his facts because, um, you know, Title IX title was never intended and there's nothing in the language of the regulations or the law that suggests that Title IX is about cramping educational opportunities for anyone uh, on behalf of some other group of, of people. Uh, you know, school, individual schools make their decisions. Uh, and sometimes they, they, in order to sort of not have to bear responsibility for the decisions that they're making about the teams they want to support, they'll blame title IX as the, you know, the reason why they're cutting back on a mill sport. We saw a lot of this in the 1990s with cutbacks at, at uh, university level for, uh, things like wrestling. Right. Um, and it's, it's really wrong to blame Title IX. Title IX is about creating a, a, a palette of inclusion in athletic ac- activities. And there are perfectly um, uh, you know, predictable uh, guidelines for how school, how schools shall be measured in their uh, pursuit of that, that equity. Title IX does not demand that there have to be um, exactly equal numbers of teams, or that there has to be exactly, uh, or, or that there needs to be co-educational access to football or anything like that, right? Um, Title IX is about um, making advances towards equity. Title IX is about uh, making sure that the interests and talents and uh, uh, You know, sort of demands of young women are attended to to the same extent that they are for young men. Um, And, you know, that's not a soundbite, but uh, it's a very frustrating kind of uh, blame game that gets uh, perpetrated against Title IX and against uh, girl and women's sports by teams that are male teams that are suffering from cutbacks. They need to protest their schools. Um, uh, you know, to to make sure that their schools are making proper decisions, um, but they shouldn't blame equality for the decisions that are being made.
2: A part of me does just feel sorry for him that he he hasn't read your book yet, <laughs> but um So I think throughout the stories of legislative victories that are chronicled in your book, it's clear that Patsy didn't work on her own. So it's also very clear that she was an incredibly effective leader with this ability to make sure every member of her team was recognized and felt valued. So how do you think she developed that leadership skill?
1: Um, You know, I, I really couldn't uh, point to anything, uh, in particular, or you know, like a leadership course or something that she took, where she learned that strategy. I think it was a, a the the um, commitment to collaboration. I think was kind of a something that came naturally. It was there in her very first political struggle, which was as a student of color at the University of Nebraska protesting discrimination in housing. Uh, she sort of she led that protest. She was the one who. Uh, wrote letters to the editor of the student newspaper and complained to the administration or whatever, but she built a, a coalition uh, that lifted up her voice and she in turn lifted up their voices and ultimately they, they secured a change. So I, you know, and I think that was a, that was a learning experience that she carried forward into political life, into policymaking life that, um, you know, that, that, coalition and solidarity are kind of important values uh, to practice in uh, in pursuing your activism, whether it's uh, at the grassroots level or in in the halls of uh, the legislature.
2: And you also write about Patsy's fearlessness. You noted that she often stood up for issues that, in her words, were, quote, ahead of the majority. And she even ran for president when she knew she didn't have the votes to win. Do you ever remember her feeling defeated or questioning
1: her decisions after a political loss? Um, I, don't, I don't really have a... Uh clear memory of her questioning her political decisions. I do uh, remember her her sadness, or or I don't know what is a a more appropriate word, upon defeat. Um, Her first real defeat came in 1959. Uh, Hawaii had just uh, been admitted as a state. Candidates were uh, running for the U.S. House of Representatives for the very first time in the new state, and she ran and she lost that election. And it was a particularly uh, vicious campaign, and there was uh, all kinds of misogyny that was deployed in the in the course of that campaign. And you know, by the by the end of it, she certainly knew that she was not going to win, but. Um, when she did, lo- you know, when the loss was confirmed um, on election night, she, she despaired, I think. She despaired for 24 hours um, over the, the ways in which stereotypes and, and biases, bigotry, um, could sort of shut people down. But she was never somebody who sort of remained in that frame of mind for long, she always, sort of would, would take a feeling of, of sadness or frustration or anger or despair and try to turn it inside out into uh, sort of a, a reason to press forward politically. Uh, you may not be able to press forward in the way you thought you were going to be going, but you could still press forward for the things that were your goals in the first place, which for her were always Um, issues like peace, like equality, like social justice, like the environment, right? I mean, none of those things, uh, uh, you know, depend upon a single individual winning a single election, right? So uh, her her whole philosophy was, well, she would have, you know, really been happy to be a champion in elective office at that moment. But if she's not, she needed to figure out other ways to uh, to keep those fights going to sort of keep on keeping on.
2: And how lucky we all are that she didn't stop in 1959 because she did so many incredible things after that. I want to ask about you because you grew up as a child of a public figure and a public figure who had so many firsts to her name. What was that like for you?
1: Um, well, you know, when she was. doing the first thing, in which was primarily 50s and 60s and a little bit maybe in the 70s, she wasn't self-consciously trying to be the first anything. She was sort of doing what she felt called to do. Um, and um, so I wasn't really aware that she was a first. I mean, sometimes it, my father would say, oh, so did you know that you're the first blah, 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 whatever the situation was but that was not really the, the uh, sort of a top of mind around the dinner table for sure. Um, the wider public didn't uh, herald her as a first during those years either. The wi- wider public treated her as an anomaly, as sort of a, you know, as a thing to be explained, not as a, a new accomplishment to be cheered. So I never had the sense from sort of the public's reaction to what she did, whether it was becoming a practicing attorney in in the territory of Hawaii or being elected to the territorial and then the state legislature or being elected to Congress. I never had the sense from the general public that uh, she was accomplishing a first. I had the sense that she was considered an anomaly and by enough people considered an anomaly in a good way that she would win win elections. Um, So um, my main experience of childhood was mainly around the issues that she was fighting for. And um, I was somehow both a very nosy child and also I guess a child with a uh, uh, deep political sort of curiosity. So I paid close attention to the political work she was engaged in and that was probably unusual for the time, but um, it certainly made for a fascinating uh, childhood. To you know, go to protests and rallies, and uh, watch um, other people um, uh, recruit uh, support and help my mo- and watch my mother uh, assist in all of that. That was um, that was probably a very different childhood <laughs> than most. And, and you did sort of follow in her footsteps
2: as an activist and have continued her work. Did that feel like, I mean, it sounds like that was totally by your own your own initiative that, again, I, I do think it, you, you're talking in your book about being six years old and recognizing the importance of what your mother did. And I think that's incredible. I mean, I do think that is a little unusual, but you, you didn't necessarily rebel and think I need to do something totally different. You felt comfortable following her path is, do I have that right?
1: Yeah. Well, I, I was, um, maybe this is a strategy that she and my father self-consciously adopted, but I don't think so. They, I first of all, I was an only child and so it's probably easier when you when it's just one child that's involved in in this kind of dynamic. I was very integrated into their activities and it was a you know it was a different time where you could take your kid to lots of places that you wouldn't necessarily take your kid today. Um, so I, I got to see a lot of what she was working on and I could see not only how, important it was to her and how important it was to my father, but also why it was important. You know, like when, when I would go with her to, uh, to, uh, picket lines with, with striking workers, you know, I could, I could see why it was so important that those workers got some justice in their demands for a higher wage kind of thing. And those things all sort of registered deeply in my consciousness as things that I thought, um, were important to struggle for. And so I, you know, I went about growing up to do that kind of work my, myself, not as a candidate, not as a elected person, not even as a public person particularly, but certainly um, uh, sort of committed to the, the same causes with, you know, um, with a sort of camaraderie with my mother around them.
2: And so I listened to your interview on the Asian American History 101 podcast and you called the current moment in politics so much darker and scarier than any moment in your political life. So do you have advice for people who are listening and they might not be quite as fierce or fearless as your mother, but they want to follow the trail that she blazed. What can we be doing to continue her fight and and your fight? For equality,
1: well, I think we have to just keep on fighting. Um, the terrain shifts, you know, as, as rights are taken away, and the and or the exercise of rights um, is cramped. Um, in particular, by the Supreme Court, we need to be actively figuring out other ways to accomplish those same uh, objectives. But I think we just need to keep on fighting, and we need to you know, buck each other up along the way. And we also need to know that um, sort of an ethical politics is a politics that is not necessarily going to win every time. An ethical politics is a politics that keeps on pursuing the just ends and keeps on standing up to powers that would would crush the just ends. Um, and, you know, that, that's about it. We just need to keep on keeping on, really. Um, and, I, and, you know, I hope the, the there have been dark times in the past for sure. And I think we can learn from my mother's life and from her and, and other, uh, you know, activists who have uh, had long political careers. We can learn something about, how important it is to uh, articulate the, the just arguments to wage the politics of principle and so forth. Even if in the moment that you're doing that, you don't win, you know, a year down the road, you might have a new platform to re-insinuate those ideas into a, a new and, and larger context. So, um, yeah, it's 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 a it's a dark time, but I I think that the only way we we uh, uh, find the light is by creating it through activism.
2: Well, Wendy, thank you so much for joining me today, and I just I so appreciate you talking about yourself and your mother. I really appreciate your book, Fierce and Fearless. We'll definitely include a link to that in our show notes. So hopefully all of our listeners pick that book up. And I'm also, I'm also just, so thankful. I'm glad I get to talk to you as, as the dog goes crazy in the background. I don't know if you can hear that, but, uh, I, am. Um, I'm so grateful. I got to talk to you because I recognize now again, that my life would be totally different without your mother's work, without your work. And so I am thankful. And I'm going to take this interview in our conversation and do what I can to stand up and to continue that struggle because it, it is, it is terrifying to think that others might not have the opportunities I've had, but I'm thankful for the, you know, the, the help I've had in, in getting to where I am now. And, um, I am hopeful that myself and a lot of our listeners do keep that fight going. Even when things seem bad, you know, over time, as you, like, as you said, your mother's life shows, we can make real progress. So thank you.
1: Thank you very much.
3: Wow. What a great kickoff to this series. I want to thank Haley, especially for such an awesome interview. And Sarah, who do we have up next week?
0: Yeah, I was, um, I actually like welled up a little bit listening to that interview, um, getting ready for this. So yeah, next week, speaking of welling up, I, I also cried during the interview next week. So so our next week's interview, um, I, I did with Bobby Gibb, who was the first woman to run the Boston Marathon, uh, unofficially, mm-hmm. Catherine Switzer- I guess, officially, though, she I, I don't really know how they define that because I don't either. But in 1966, I do know now that Bobby Gibb traveled for three days across the country, hid in a bush and jumped out <laughs> and ran the Boston Marathon, even though she was told she she wasn't physically capable of it, even though she knew she was because she ran 26 miles on a regular basis. She ran um, it fast. And she, and she ran and she ran fast. So super stoked for next week. But yes, thanks again for the awesome interview, Haley and Wendy.
3: Nine Voices for Title IX, powered by Inside Jacker, is a feisty media production.
0: This episode was produced and edited by the amazing Amelia Perry.